you haven't already, please do open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Well, our text for today really has uh, two streams flowing through it that are probably best captured by verse 41. So if you look in your Bibles at verse 41, I'm sorry, verse 47, we read, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So in the first stream, you have those who do hear the words of God. Jesus describes them as truly his disciples. But in the second stream are those who do not hear the word of God. And we see in this text, Jesus sort of pulling back the curtain and exposing the human heart. So the Gospel of John is written with a purpose. And that chief purpose is to bring us face to face with God from the very first words we're all familiar with. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So if you imagine a parent who desires to get the attention of their child, what do they say? They say, look me in my eyes. Look at my eyes. And our hope is that if they're looking at us, they might hear what we have to say. The Gospel of John is no different. God is grabbing us. He's forcing us to look. And through this book, we are brought nearer and nearer to his face through the revelation of himself in his son. We're brought to look at him as we're brought to look at his son. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now our text begins in verse 31. If you look at verse 31, Jesus' words, he speaks to the Jews who had believed. So up to this point, there's been a gradual narrowing of those who Jesus is speaking to. So in chapter 7, Verse 40, Jesus has spoken to the people. In chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus answers the Pharisees. And then in chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus speaks to the Jews. Now he is speaking to the Jews who believed him. There's a sequence here that really starts with a condition. If you look at verse 31, it says, If, not, not you will abide, but if you abide, or some, some of your Bibles may say remain, if you remain, or perhaps if you continue. I think the NIV says if you hold on to. If you abide in my word, then what follows is true. So it, it sounds something like this. If you abide in my word. If you abide in my word. Now what does that mean? Are, are, is the text suggesting that the certainty of our salvation is predicated on us, sort of on our abiding, the work of the believer? And we have lots of reasons for why we should reject that. Uh, first, Jesus says that abiding is the mark of those who are truly his disciples. Those who continue are those who are truly his disciples. Or we could say, those who are truly his disciples will remain. They will abide. They'll continue in his word. Second, look at verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. The Jews claimed in verse 33 that they were the offspring of Abraham. Abraham, and they've never been enslaved by anyone. Literally, it says, 
never at any time or by no one at no time. They very emphatically state that they're not in need of liberation. And Jesus doesn't deny their lineage, but they're seeking to kill him. And the question is, why? Why are they seeking to kill him? He says, because my word finds no place in you. So in verse 31, follow the thought here in verse 31, if you abide in my word, verse 37, he says, my word finds no place in you. My word hasn't taken up residence in you. My word doesn't live in you. The the house that you live in doesn't have room for me. The door's locked. The curtains are drawn. You filled it with treasures and trinkets of your own delight. Jesus says, in effect, I see your heart. I'm looking at your heart. And my word finds no place in you. Now, continuing down this stream, look in verse 39. Some of your Bibles, like mine, may indicate a new paragraph or a new section. The ESV has a title for the section. It says, you are of your father, the devil. And maybe you don't have that title, but maybe you just have a new paragraph there. Two things are apparent in verse 39. The first is that it's not a new section in the sense that the dialogue's broken. Uh, They're responding to Jesus. And we know it continues But there is a shift at verse 39 that we want to pay attention to that I think actually escalates the tension in our text. So verse 39, I'm going to read it so as to hopefully emphasize the shift that I think John wants us to see. So verse 39, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus now said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So one more time. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus now said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. There are two clues in the text. I believe the NASB captures it. Maybe there are other translations, but it says they answered and said. That might sound redundant, and perhaps it is, but uh, there is a reason for why it's there, and that's to draw attention to what follows. And the second clue is uh, there's a focus on what Jesus said. The author is telling us to pay attention to what follows. Why does John do this? Well, he wants us to pay attention to what follows. What does Jesus say? He says, if you were Abraham's children. Now, up to this point, he's used a different word. We've seen the word in verse 33, uh, offspring. Maybe your translation says uh, descendants. Uh, Maybe some, some of your translations say, I think more accurately, seed. By using the word children, Jesus is now rejecting their claim that they are the true seed of Abraham. And and even this is conditional. We see in the text, if you were Abraham's children, and the words are not lost on his opponents. Look at their response in verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. There's a great irony here because earlier in the Gospel of John, they've charged Jesus with blasphemy precisely because he's claiming God as his own father. Chapter 5, verse 18. And thus making himself equal with God. 
And now they claim sort of the same thing. In a fit of anger, they lash out. They're not really thinking at this point. They're, they're, they're reacting. We see their, their anger. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one God, one Father. Here they exalt themselves while simultaneously mocking the Son of God. They themselves increase even as in their estimations he decreases. It's hard to imagine they meant anything other than the unique circumstances that accompany Jesus' birth. Jesus just claimed in verse 39 to speak of what he had seen with his father, what he had seen really beside his father. More explicitly in verse 42, Jesus says he came from God. In rejecting his identity, his opponents affirm their identity is in the promises made to Abraham. They believe themselves to be the seed. And their hope is in Abraham, not the God of Abraham. Their hope is in the promises made in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 21, not the God of the promise. But Jesus does something here, and this is why I think John is drawing our attention to the verse. He begins to push the argument back in time. The seed promise was renewed in Abraham, but it didn't start in Abraham. C.S. Lewis uh, cleverly called it uh, deeper magic before the dawn of time. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, or between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first gospel promise. Who's the seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is the seed of Abraham. Who's the seed of Abraham? We have on good authority, Galatians 3.16, the seed who is Christ. Jesus wants to take the argument all the way back to the very beginning. Who was this first gospel promise spoken to? Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent. The serpent. Now look in your Bibles at verse 44, John 8.44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Or the NASB, you want to do the desires of your father. Or the King James, the lusts of your father you will to do. This is the hidden darkness. This is the slavery that Jesus refers to in verse 34. Uh, slavery to sin. They're mastered by corrupt desires. There's a, there's a problem with their wills. Jonathan Edwards wrote what R.C. Sproul called the most important theological work ever produced in America, freedom of the will. In it, Edwards argues that human beings always, without exception, choose to do what they are most strongly inclined to do at the time. It's impossible for them not to. They choose according to their strongest desires. They freely choose what they most want. The decisions we make reflect our deepest desires. Blaise Pascal said it this way, All men seek happiness, and this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will 
never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. It's not that these Jews who had believed simply fail to abide, that they're incapable of abiding. They're not truly disciples. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 2, a familiar verse, but listen to the language and the similarities of the language. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is not a Jewish problem. It's not a Gentile problem. It's a human problem. By nature, we are held captive by wills that are bent toward evil. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We will to do lusts, passions, the desires that accord with the devil. Look again at verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Many of you are perhaps familiar with C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Uh, it's a work of satire, and it's written from the perspective of one demon speaking to his other demon uncle, and by extension working for their demon father. That's the, that's the idea. Listen to the fictional exchange between the two. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That would be God in this case. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than entertainment if entertainment can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Lewis brings out the subtlety of the devil's lies. They're not always obvious. He's crafty. Verse 44. When, not if, but when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his own nature. Now, your translation may say whenever he speaks a lie or whenever he tells a lie, but I believe Jesus here has in mind something very specific. When he speaks the lie. And I have three reasons for that. Uh, look at the strong contrast in the verse that follows, verse 45. Jesus says, But because I tell the truth. The conjunction, the but, is, is alerting us to a contrast. Second, while it's clear uh, that there's a disparity between what the devil is saying and what Jesus is saying, the point is that they're both speaking. They're saying something, Jesus the truth and the devil something else. 
And third, Jesus has just described the devil in verse 44 as a murderer from the beginning. What is this murder? Again, I think Jesus is pushing the argument back in time. We all know the story, I hope, if not. Uh, God speaks the universe into existence. He stretches out the space. He fills it with his glowing treasures. He perfectly harmonizes the cosmos so that this tiny dot on the galactic scale called Earth might be habitable. He carefully crafts Earth, filling it with wonderful creatures and plants and smells and sounds. And at the climax of his work, he creates human beings after his likeness. But then we read in Genesis 3 that it all comes crashing down. Or as Paul would capture it in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin and death, suffering and famine, war and murder. One source claims that more than 14,000 wars have taken place between 3500 BC and the 20th century costing 3.5 billion lives, leaving only 300 years of peace. There's something wrong. The devastating effects of human sin as a result of the lie. So what is the lie? Genesis 3.1, did God actually say? Every lie has its root in this soil. It's preference of anything over God. It's the claim that there is something more desirable than God. This is what Jesus means, I think, when he says the devil is speaking the lie. And he now stands before people who are seeking to kill him, accusing him of falsehood, the ancient lie. Are you actually saying, are you really the son of God? Now, remember that our text began with Jesus' words to the Jews who had believed in him. So we've traced one stream. We're now going to trace the other stream. And we now know that in verse 44, they are actually of their father, the devil. They thus do not believe. So what do we do with this? Jews who had believed, who we've come to find out actually don't believe. There are a couple of ways to take it. The first is that they they actually had belief and then relatively quickly they lost their faith. They no longer believe. And I think certainly the broader context of God's word would reject this and it reads a lot more into the text than we would like. But let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What's the it? That the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely and that your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or more familiar to us, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I think to take this position reads a lot into uh, one phrase, the Jews who had believed. But perhaps the group that replies in verse 33 is different from the group that Jesus begins talking to in verse 31. But there's really no reason to suppose they are a different group. And we're actually keyed into something in verse 31. It's the condition. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The words of Jesus cast doubt on their profession. Instead, I think our attention is drawn to the kind 
of belief. So consider, consider the parable of the sower. A sower sows seed, seed falls along the path, and the birds come and devour it. We're told Satan has taken it away. Or other seeds fall on rocky ground and immediately springs up. But it has no depth of soil. So when the sun rises, it is scorched. It has no root. They receive the word with joy, but they have no root. So they believe, that's what it says, or they endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution comes, immediately, that is as quickly as it sprang up, they fall away. Other seeds fall among, among the thorns and are choked. They yield no grain. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Now John tells us why he wrote this book in John chapter 20. He says, these are written so that you may believe. He's concerned with belief, with faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in a sense, the Gospel of John is a giant parable of the sower. What is genuine faith? Now, this isn't the first time something like this has occurred in, in our Gospel in John. We have in John 2, 23, this, this uh, text. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, what did Jesus think of this faith? We're told in verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John tells us just before, in verse 22, that it was after Jesus was resurrected from the dead that the disciples believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Mental assent is not Christian faith. And I think this is the chief weakness of Christian apologetics. We, we should engage the mind. We should engage the mind. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, All truth is given by revelation, either general or special, and it must be received by reason. Reason is the God-given means for discovering the truth that God discloses, whether in his world or in his word. While God wants to reach the heart with truth, he does not bypass the mind. We do go through the mind, but God wants to reach the heart. And I think apologetics does serve a purpose. It goes through the mind. It's the inevitable overflow of Christian delight. I mean, after all, we've been brought to eternal life. We actually know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We have been enabled, finally, to enjoy his glory, which the heavens declare and the skies proclaim. We give a defense because there's a hope in us. We're commanded to contend for the faith, and we ought to exert intense effort in doing so. We should be well-read. We should be well-studied. We should do the work of deconstruction. Paul calls it destroying every argument and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. All these things we should do, and they are true. Yet none of them are sufficient in themselves to bring about saving faith. We're talking about a work of grace, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The blindness is a blindness to the beauty of God. 
In 2007, the Washington Post conducted an experiment in the middle of morning rush hour in Washington, D.C. Maybe you remember this article. It was 7.51 a.m. on Friday, January the 12th. In the next 43 minutes, as a violinist performed six, performed six classical pieces, almost 1,100 people passed by. Who was the violinist? His name is Joshua Bell. He was a one-time child prodigy and internationally acclaimed virtuoso. He was very, very skilled as a violin player. Three days prior, he had filled a symphony hall in Boston where median seats went for $100. His talents can command $1,000 a minute. He emerged from the metro and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. He wore ordinary clothes, jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and regrettably, a Washington Nationals baseball cap. It doesn't say regrettably. <laughs> from, a, from a small case, he removed a violin. This violin was handcrafted in 1713 by a man named Antonio Stradivari during the Italian master's golden period. It was made from the finest spruce and maple and willow. No violins sound as wonderful as the Strads from 1710. This violin had a price tag of $3.5 million. So placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money, faced pedestrian traffic, and began to play. Three minutes went by before something happened. Sixty-three people had already passed by when finally there was a breakthrough of sorts. A middle-aged man altered his gait for a split second, turning his head to notice that there seemed to be some guy playing music. Yes, the man kept walking, but it was something. A half minute later, Bell got his first donation. A woman threw in a buck and scooted off. It was not until six minutes into the performance that someone actually stood against a wall and listened. The awkward times were what happens right after each piece ends. Nothing. The music stops. The same people who hadn't noticed him playing don't notice that he's finished. There's no applause, no acknowledgement. The final haul for his 43 minutes of playing was $37.17. Yes, people gave pennies. He stood and few saw. He played and few heard though he was hidden in plain sight. Jesus is standing before their eyes, something greater than the profound beauty and wonder of a violinist player. God in the flesh, in their midst. But, as is so often the case with the tip of the hat, they say, good message, Jesus, and they move on. They have the dead to bury and relatives to visit. They're too busy. They have better things to do. None of this surprises Jesus. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Jesus knew what was in man. They were laid bare before him. Like Hebrews 4, they were all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. As long as he could perform tricks, they would follow. But what about when Jesus said something they didn't like? We know that they followed him because of the signs, but what about when he offended them with his words? John chapter 6, Jesus proclaims that he is the bread of life. He says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So naturally, his disciples begin to grumble. John 6, 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, addresses his disciples. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. Then he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now listen to the words that follow in John 6, 66. After this... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't approve of his words. D.A. Carson says it this way, The fickle mob psychology can believe Jesus only when his teachings do not clash with their prejudices and can turn murderous when their fundamental religious biases are called into question. I do wonder about the ways in which this persists in us. What do we do when the scriptures challenge our pet theological topics or perhaps our political persuasions or maybe methodology regarding evangelism or liturgy or a litany of other things? What do we do? How do we respond when the weight of the scripture speaks against our prejudices? Our response does testify to our view of God. Jesus is standing before a murderous mob You seek to kill me. And he tells him twice, again in verse 40, and they don't deny it. His whole life is filled with threats and sufferings. He's sleep-deprived and hungry. He's falsely accused. He's rejected by his family, rejected by his disciples. Truly a man of sorrows. Now standing before men with murder in their hearts. And this is what he says in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is claiming to have the power to set people free. Now they respond in verse 33. They say, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? It is impossible to imagine they had physical captivity in mind. We know some of the history, Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and now Rome. They've been subjugated one way or the other for quite some time. They almost certainly mean freedom with regard to the promises made to Abraham, which we mentioned earlier, and they intensify that claim. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. The appeal to Abraham is the thread that runs through the rest of the chapter. So when Pastor Jim preaches next week, we're going to see it elevated further. They believed they had a freedom by right. As offspring of Abraham, they were entitled to the promises made to him. God owes them. It's a human problem. I think we all naturally respond, what do you mean by set us free? What do you mean by liberate us? We aren't captive. We're not slaves. It's a human problem. How is it that you say you will become free? Math, uh, excuse me, Mark 2, 17, I think, helps us to unpack the question they ask. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We're not sick, Jesus. We're well. We don't need a doctor. Why are you here? This is a human problem. We shake our fists at God, demanding that he condescend to our requests, when before us is the one who condescended in a far greater way. He came from God and 
in front of them is now here, he says in verse 42. He came not of his own accord, he was sent. The greatest missionary who ever lived was sent. And his mission was to liberate the captives. He offered himself in the place of criminals like us. Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, 37, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But listen to Peter's, excuse me, Pilate's response. Listen to what he says. And this is, of course, right before he walks away. What is truth? That's it. That's all he says. What is truth? No, Pilate. Who? Who is truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pilate was merciful until it became risky, but Jesus is merciful all the way to the end, to the cross, to the point of death. One songwriter put it this way, Jesus persists and goes to the cross and trusts in God's promises and doesn't self-exalt. He sheds his own blood, and in the three he rose again, the God-man never sinned. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Don't overlook the little word indeed. The Holy Spirit's not filling space. He means it. Indeed, if the son sets you free, you will really be free. No longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. Taking off the old self and putting on the new self. You've been set free from sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Douglas Moo says it this way. By faith, one can enter into union with Christ and be counted with him as the seed to whom the promises were made. The son is over the house forever. He is the seed. And in him, we are the seed. In him, God is our father. Now to conclude, just a couple of points of application, things for us to consider. Number one, freedom is possible. Freedom is possible. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in us more powerful than the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. There's nothing in us that can overpower his work to undo sin. He died and rose again. There is freedom. Second, beware of false freedom. Perseverance is the mark of genuine faith. Oftentimes when people ask me, how, how, how do you know that you were saved? My response is usually, well, I'll persevere to the end, or God will preserve me to the end, if you abide in my word. Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Two things. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Uh, John, in his second letter, in verse 9, writes, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and the Son. And the writer of Hebrews, For we have come to share in Christ, chapter 3, verse 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He goes on to say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Listen for his voice. 
And three, rejoice in Jesus, our liberator. Look at verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. The chief characteristic of true, genuine faith is true, genuine love for the Son of God. In fact, our obedience is rooted in it. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Although we do not see him, we love him. Let's pray together.